Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI. I'm Simon, one of Arc's genomics analysts, covering things like DNA sequencing, molecular diagnostics, and synthetic biology. Now, today, I'm mostly going to be wearing my diagnostics hat because we're going to be talking about the state of genetic testing in the U.S. So, the central technological enabler of things like precision medicine and genetic testing is DNA sequencing, which has slid down one of the most staggering cost decline curves in history. The Human Genome Project, which wrapped up in 2003, was the scientific community's first real attempt at sequencing the entirety of the human genome. So this project took about a decade. It required labs all over the world to contribute data and cost around $3 billion when all was said and done. Flash forward to today, that same sequence can be assembled in minutes for as little as 500 bucks. So obviously, we're not all getting our DNA sequenced when we go to the doctor. So what gives? Well, part of the reason is because we wouldn't know what to do with all that information if we had it. Though this limitation is beginning to disappear as we discover more about the genome and connect it to disease. There are numerous other barriers to translating genomics into clinical practice, not the least of which, again, is cost. Now, the landscape has changed so rapidly that many stakeholders, such as you and me, so patients, policymakers, physicians, and insurance providers, all of them have struggled to gather and make sense of how quickly everything is changing. Enter Concert Genetics, the genetic health information network. Concert is a technology company that employs state-of-the-art data science to lend transparency to the murky ecosystem of genetic testing. Their platform generates really granular insight and intelligence on some of the pain points that exist within the clinical adoption of genetics. Things like insurance, billing, ordering, utilization gaps, physician and patient education, and obviously pricing. So this week, I'm really excited to talk to Rob Metcalf, the CEO of Concert Genetics. We're going to dive into the present and the future of genomics and how the most innovative companies are systematically addressing all of the barriers to the clinical adoption of genetics. Yeah. So Rob, thanks for joining us. I think the first thing that I'd like to start off with is actually your background. I know that your previous experience was in a little bit of, a, of an adjacent industry, right? So things like machine learning, information technology. I'd like to learn a little bit more about how you got involved with concert and healthcare broadly. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I'm great to be here. A little bit, yeah, about my background. So I've been the CEO of Concert Genetics for the last four years. And as you said, I was in the 
in a different world, not in the healthcare world very much at all before, although living here in Nashville, it's hard to be too far away from healthcare. But I was running a artificial intelligence machine learning company, and we were focused at that company on unstructured data and mm. how to apply these emerging algorithms and parallel processing and cloud infrastructures to solve a set of very real problems in initially in national security, but then in financial services and then a little bit in healthcare. And I got into that from after about five or six years of running companies at LexisNexis, Reed Elsevier. So running software and data mm -hmm. businesses and kind of seeing how the landscape of data software was changing how businesses were run. And so I was got to be really, really interested, particularly at the intersection of these kind of hard science, math, computer science problems, and then the business problems. Like what are the real things mm -hmm. that you can go out and do with these technologies? And at the previous company, Digital Reasoning, we were solving some really interesting ones, like how to find kind of bad actors in human trafficking and mm. how to read through in highly regulated environments, communications and find insider trading or insider threat and kind of not just understand how the technology worked and innovate mm -hmm. for innovation sense, but really start to apply that to go and solve real problems. And so I was able to kind of make a transition about four years ago and became the CEO of Concert, introduced through common investors, et cetera. But I was, for very, very similar reasons, was very, very interested in how sort of math and science and chemistry and biology and healthcare mm -hmm. would evolve. Mm -hmm. I saw genetics, genetic testing, personalized medicine as kind of one of those unique problems that was had enormous potential, so really big as a business person, big market, had a real need for people who could kind of come in and think in innovative ways and figure out what the problems were that needed to be solved. And mm -hmm. so the founder of the business that we it's now called Concert Genetics at the time it was called Next GXDX was looking for a business partner and invited me to come in and really the skill set that I had lined up well with the CEO role and uh, he took on the role of the chief innovation officer and that's just been a great a great mm -hmm. experience ever since. Right. So I, I know you mentioned, you know, you talked about unstructured data. It sounds like based on some of the areas that you were in before concert, you were dealing with a lot of murkiness um, and things that were a little bit, you know, kind of hidden. So that, you know, bridged with genetics, obviously, you know, when people look at healthcare, you start to, especially over the past, you know, 10 or 15 years since the cost of sequencing has come down and the adoption of genetic testing ostensibly has, you know, increased. I'm wondering how you've bridged those two, right? Because healthcare information, a lot of it was manual. A lot of it was kind of hidden and difficult to assess. So maybe to maybe narrow in on a question, you know, why genetics and why now specifically? Well, I think there are a number of ways to approach that problem, but I'd, I'd probably step back and sort of say, well, you know, at a high level, what problem are we trying to solve or what problems are mm -hmm. we trying to solve with genetics? with genetic testing, with personalized medicine. And then you can start to kind of figure out where in that cycle we are towards solutions. So at a, at a very high level, I think we are with genetics and personalized medicine, we're trying to solve some important problems around health, 
We're trying to find cures to diseases. We're trying to improve the health of our fellow humans. And we're trying to do that in a way that leverages a growing understanding of the world around us. And in the sort of broad swaths of innovation, we're applying technologies, we're applying math, discovery, innovation, biology to try to figure out how we can improve health, how we can improve the quality and also the economics of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, my perspective on the moment we're in is we are now sort of coming into an age of personalized medicine. We've been at it for a long time in many ways, but it also takes a long time to build evidence and understanding. And then mm-hmm. once you have evidence and understanding, sort of fundamental research starts to transition into sort of like what's the application. We've seen some amazing applications of genetics, genetics health. But at the same time, when kind of I looked at the market trying to understand what we would do as concert uh, and where we would make a mark, what emerged is just how, to use your term, how murky it was, how mm-hmm. little infrastructure there really was to go and solve that problem, to do the math. Mm-hmm. So my, my background in running these companies was you need to get access. To, in order to do the math, you need data, and you got to have access to it. And in order to have data, you got to have infrastructure that serves up the data in a usable format. And so when we looked at the ecosystem of personalized medicine, it was just really clear that at every step in the value chain, whether it was diagnosis or interpretation of genetic results or development of therapies or understanding cost and efficacy, there's just no infrastructure. The infrastructure was not built to go solve this problem. And so we said, well, okay, how do we start to go and plug in gaps in that infrastructure? So I think that kind of wraps around your question. It's like, what problem are we trying to solve? We're trying to enable and advance personalized medicine by building some of the fundamental infrastructure that enables people to do the math. Well, no, and I think, you know, point well taken, right? I think four years since you've been at concert, like four years can be a long time if you're looking at, like, for instance, sequencing cost declines. You can say, wow, things have really changed from that perspective. But I think something that doesn't get talked about as much as it should, which is why I'm happy, you know, we're talking about it, is there's a lot of peripheral infrastructure for actually translating that into clinical practice. And it's not as easy as price elasticity of demand, which, of course, is an integral backbone to the problem. But when you start thinking about, you know, like you said, clinical evidence development and making that case, especially in the era of personalized medicine, where, you know, it can be difficult to run the types of trials that have historically been, you know, the gold standard, and and you've got to kind of modernize it or think about it that way. So maybe what was your perspective coming into working at Concert four years ago? What were the biggest pain points? And maybe some of the things that actually shocked you about the state of affairs, if I can say that much. And then, you know, whether it's you guys that have been championing it or maybe the industry just changing, what has really changed a lot in those four years and what things are still just keeping you up at night? (laughs) Well, since I came into healthcare, really as an outsider four years ago, I mean, I think my understanding was at the time much more like most folks. Think about healthcare, you think about your doctor, you think about procedures, you think about hospitals, think about Mm -hmm. getting sick and getting well again. And I think those are all important things. But I think the things that I started to get into, we started to get into, and we tried to understand what was happening in genetics, was the healthcare system. 
and healthcare economics and the mm -hmm. business of healthcare and the inner relationship between all of those different aspects and trying to piece together in a logical framework what was happening start to finish as it relates to sort of the life cycle of genetics in the healthcare ecosystem. So from diagnosis, from genetic test to interpretation, to therapy, to payment, mm -hmm, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and then ultimately to learning, which is sort of where we want to be in these highly dynamic, complex areas. My realization was just how different the business of healthcare is from what generally people think about healthcare. And then the number, the sheer volume of intermediaries, the number of players, the fact that it's a healthcare, the business of healthcare is massive, but also multiple industries. What a provider is interested in, what a physician is interested in, whether that physician works for the hospital or health system, just every big area gets broken down. Payers, your large national payers, payer perspective from how they handle their fully insured business to their administrative services only business, private payers versus government payers, laboratories, broad-based general laboratories, innovate. I mean, you just go on, you just, and then the number of systems and number of is that intermediaries that you have to deal with if you want to go in and start to solve some of the problems in healthcare. You want to start to measure outcomes. You want to start to understand efficacy. You want to start to do that in the way we do it in most other areas where you look at the actual data from the world and measure how it works. And that's a long way off, at least as it relates to personalized medicine. But as we kind of talked about earlier, it's an interesting and uh, important challenge. Mm -hmm. So maybe I know some people who are listening and are probably familiar, especially those who have read the most recent white paper that you put out, which I'm going to link so people can read that. But maybe to just give some explicit examples so people can kind of have a toe line through maybe the patient perspective of what you're talking about, right? Like, I think a really good and topical example might be to talk about non-invasive prenatal screening. Like people are somewhat familiar with the fact that, you know, now given advances in things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and obviously sequencing, we can non-invasively take a blood draw from an expectant mother to screen for, you know, potentially uh, hereditary conditions, right? So people have an idea of that. The patient journey can be different. I know it's changed a lot when prices were higher. Obviously, you did involve maybe an insurer and, you know, it, we used to be state to state, very fragmented the American College of, you know, OBGYN was coming at it from, you know, again, a pretty haphazard approach, which luckily now has been a little more formalized. But long story short, I want to just give listeners maybe a bird's eye view on that timeline where some of the bigger friction points are with things like, you know, maybe pre-authorization, the payer relationships, direct to consumer versus non, just so we have a, you know, something to work off of. Yeah, I'll walk you through kind of how we think about the value chain. And I would just, as context, before we dive into just the prenatal aspect of it, when we concert talk about genetic testing and the tests that we track and measure, the prenatal is a large category, one of the larger mm -hmm. ones. But we're also talking about hereditary cancer, so risk of right. developing cancer. Right. We're talking about a cancer treatment, somatic testing. How is my if I have cancer, how is my cancer going to respond to certain therapies? We're talking about pharmacogenomic testing. How does my body mm -hmm. metabolize drugs? talking about rare diseases, talking about such a breadth, we're talking about your cancer screening, whether that's right. I mean, the, the proliferation, yeah. so that's just one 
way to think about how complex. We track about 150,000 unique orderable genetic tests at concert across 25, 30 different domains or specialties. I think one thing that is just always happening is the science is pushing farther and farther into almost every specialty of medicine. Now, Mm -hmm. kind of back to the question, Simon, that you asked is, where does this complexity play out? In the direct-to-consumer market, it's pretty simple. I'm curious, spit in the tube, I spend some money, I send it off to Ancestry, I get some results back, I get to see something. Quite a bit different in the clinical world where a test needs to be ordered by a, a licensed doctor and some cases genetic counselor. If that is an expensive test, which many of them are, as you said, that will go through the reimbursement process or it will at least need to, which could require a number of different things. It could require your ordering uh, physician or provider to do a prior authorization. Mm-hmm. It may also require your laboratory who's going to receive that result to require them to submit a claim. It might require them to overcome a denial, <laughs> maybe multiple mm-hmm. times, supply uh, additional evidence of why this test was needed. That's all on the payment side. There's mm-hmm. information that's going to need to be sent off to the laboratory who's going to run that test. They're going to want information about you. That information has to be gathered by a genetic counselor. That information may be in your electronic health record. That goes off to a separate entity, in most cases, a laboratory who receives that sample, who has to then return that result back. That result can come back to you in the form of a report often. Here's what we learned. Here's the evidence supporting it. Here's what needs to happen. Your physician, clinician will have to receive that report, will have to understand that report, explain it to you, and then hopefully make the right set of recommendations that you then go and follow. Mm. Each of those steps and handoffs, whether it's for ordering or resulting interpretation, reimbursement, there are errors that can happen. Things can get lost. There's confusion. And in very, very few places in our U.S. healthcare system are those done in systems that really talk to each other in discrete sort of use sort of computer sort of in discrete computable language. Most of the information Mm. that flows around, I mean, when we at concert started in this space eight or nine years ago, we were basically in the business of taking faxed test requisition forms filled out (laughs) and automating that process so that they could be digitally populated in a PDF and sent to a laboratory. So now we're taking information out of the HR, standard formats, populating that, pushing it via standards, HL7, getting discrete results back and pushing it back into the HR. So we're trying to build that infrastructure because without that infrastructure, it's really, really hard to measure if something started in the healthcare system in a miscellaneous code and EHR, went out, came back in the form of a faxed PDF, and maybe never even got attached back to that patient record. You may, hopefully, Mm -hmm. you, the patient, get the right interpretation from the right laboratory but there's almost no aggregate value, learning value from the data that the health system or the broader system has incurred. And it really is a math problem. We need examples right. to learn from, but we're not aggregating examples, or at least the system's not set up to aggregate examples and learn from the data today. Well, and I, I know too, it's not exactly like, I think this speaks to the value that you're adding, but I know many of your clients are the labs that are performing the tests themselves in terms of understanding their industries, you know, what business lines are working, where the friction points are. So I think, you know, as an extension of that, it's obviously extremely difficult for these labs to do that themselves. And 
I think it speaks to the lack of awareness and transparency that exists along that entire chain. And I think it's an important consideration when trying to like, on a very high level, understand the dynamics of genetic testing and the technological diffusion and what sorts of pricing strategies or models work. And I know that you know, as an extension of some of these price declines, we're starting to get to a really interesting point where the testing costs to patient or to insurers are almost getting to this level that enables patient pay or direct channel ordering, right? Where there's almost a decoupling from insurers to some capacity, which I think will speed up, you know, the volume of things moving left and right. And I think that it's going to be really tricky to measure how that works in the system unless you have the type of transparency that you guys are adding and how much rigor you're applying to that. Is that you know a fair assumption? It's all correct. And I think it's probably worth just describing. So I definitely want to spend some time on the sort of the patient pay dynamic, the cash pay mm-hmm. dynamic that's at work in genetic testing. But it is also worth describing just the slightly more granular level of detail some of the complexity that occurs when you want to get paid by an insurance company in this space. So mm-hmm. we work with, as a U.S. healthcare system, we work within certain standards, ICDs for describing conditions and CPTs for procedures and ordering. When you look mm-hmm. at a claim, which is kind of the fundamental element of getting paid through a laboratory, we analyze claims all the time at concert. And one of the unique aspects in our space is just how many CPT codes are used to describe a single test. These tests have gone from being mm-hmm. single gene tests to being multi-gene yeah. panel tests. The, the incremental cost of running an additional gene on next generation sequencing is zero. So it got panels proliferate. That's basically what's being done, multi-gene tests in the market. And the coding system, then there's enough sort of flexibility and beauty in the coding system that you can have multiple ways. And there are many different stakeholders. We track 250 different laboratories. There are you know 100 or more payers and so what's happening is you've got a language for communicating between laboratory and payer. The fundamental economic element is a claim. And that claim has, on average, we track about seven CPT codes per test with thousands of different mm. CPT code combinations. So if you're trying to kind of wrap your head around, at a, even as an individual health insurance company or payer, what's happening, it's really, really complex. We quite literally wrote mm. machine learning algorithms, patented algorithms to figure out from the perspective of a payer, what was being described by the claim. Mm. Think about mm-hmm. what that entails. So payer gets a claim, they don't know what's on the other end of it, commercial payer. And so that was a part of some of the infrastructure that had to be built to make sense of this market. And so when you think, now coming back to your question about what the impact of patient pay, sort of direct cash pay, especially in the context of Pretty significant portions of the commercial market, 20, 30% or more, have high deductible plans. Right? So if you're getting mm-hmm. an NIPT test in particular, probably a little different to think about in the oncology space, it's very likely mm-hmm. they're going to cash pay for that. Whether it runs through mm-hmm. your insurance company or not, you're on the hook for it. The dynamics right. of pricing are entirely different when there's a consumer doing cash pay. Right. Voluminous research and writing on this particular topic, on the differences in prices when an individual pays and when there's an intermediary in or multiple intermediaries in the process. And so I think what we're seeing, particularly in NIPT, but in other areas, is a more rapid 
evolution of products and services as a result of that cash pay. We're seeing what we see in other sectors, sort of the confluence of Moore's law, Metcalf's law, these dynamics that really do accelerate innovation. Mm-hmm. And that's good. We want that. You step back to the big problem. How do we advance health? How do we improve the lives of folks in terms of personalized medicine? We want that dynamic. It's created a sort of a two-tiered system in some ways. There's sort of, from the perspective of labs, what can I get paid or what do I, should I get paid by an insurance company? And what am I actually going to get paid by a patient who has to you know, swipe a credit card? And that mm-hmm. is a fascinating dynamic that has very little to do with the science or efficacy. It's an economic well, question. <laughs> yeah, no, and so much just came up for me there. You know, just to mention a few things, it's like in terms of the clinical value of what some testers, especially the ones that are a little bit older, have gotten accustomed to is, and to your point on CPT coding, right? Like these codes, a lot of them are older and built in a time when, you know, a bracket test was that, a bracket test. But that was not necessarily a function of, you know, one gene equals one hereditary risk bump. It's like, that was what we knew 10 years ago, right? And now we know that panels are getting bigger. The drift is larger as we begin to accumulate evidence on more genes and tie that to clinical outcomes. So I can imagine on the insurer side with those intermediaries, the coding is trending more complex as this happens, unless something gets fixed. So there's that part of it. But I think to some extent, right? Like the thing that excites me about the patient pay idea is I guess two things. One, I want you to fact check me on. I heard and read that doing patient pay and not having an insurer pay for a genetic test kind of lets you kind of protect, like there's protections under GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, where if an insurer does pay or reimburse for a test, then they can potentially disqualify you for things like life insurance or disability insurance, not your main health insurance, but putting that aside. So patient pay, you kind of sidestep that because you pay out of pocket. Two, the competition is something that I really like. And you brought up, you know, Moore's Law and some of these cost decline functions. You know, we use rights law a lot for our research. And I think the interesting thing that happens is when you start to have more competition to meet those price points, it creates this type of like benevolent deflation, right? Where the cost to consumer, you're getting the most bang for your buck because that's where the real competition is versus just being grandfathered in and kind of living on the reinsurance that existed maybe 10 years ago. So that's one of the parts that really excites me. And I think also, it's like we really need the infrastructure for being able to track that That's moving right. forward. You still need, you still want to have connections to the healthcare system. You want to have physicians. You want to have all the. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I completely agree. There are so many beneficial aspects of the patient pay. I mean, you step back in aggregate of the U.S. healthcare system, 8% of costs are just 8% of the $3.6 trillion we spend are administrative, just getting paid. Things like coverage and billing and all the intermediaries. It's massively expensive, way more expensive than anywhere else in the world. But swiping a credit card does none of that or very little of that. And I think that's what a lot of what we're trying to do is streamline those processes, even within the existing infrastructure. But the cash pay drives that question. It's like, what's the value to me, the patient, and forces a really, really, really helpful dynamic my doctor, yeah. you're recommending this test. Why? The bill's going to come to me. Tell me why it's worth it. And 
I mean, personally speaking, we did exactly this. We had a question. My wife and I had a question. My wife had a question about hereditary cancer risk. Went out. You're an investor in Vita. Simply went out, swiped a credit card. Doctor was involved. It was, it was easy. Got the answer. It was of value to us. We paid. Mm -hmm. There was no insurance intermediary or anything in that. And to me, that's what's transforming in the market. Now, there are situations where that is not going to be the norm anytime soon. I think the oncology mm -hmm. space is entirely different. Mm -hmm. The genetic test, two, three, four thousand dollars is expensive, but it's a fraction of the overall cost of cancer treatment. And getting cancer is this sort of very definition of the type of thing we have health insurance for, right? It is a mm -hmm. high consequence, low frequency event. That's why you have insurance. But the question in situations, genetic testing like that is, What's the value of the genetic test as it relates to the overall set of outcomes and cost of those outcomes? We're not well equipped to answer that question today. We're not doing a systematic job of saying, hey, maybe the test is worth $20,000. If it completely eliminates the need or the use of an expensive therapy or one that's maybe not expensive, it's just really painful and unpleasant mm -hmm. and ineffective. That's the data we want to be capturing systematically. That's the data we want to be computing on. That's the data we want to be having a feedback loop, a learning loop back into the healthcare system. So in either and, path, you need the infrastructure to go do the math. Yeah. No, and I think like extending that a little bit, I think one of the things that we're really excited about in the next, say, 18 months or so is just the opportunity for some companies to get involved with earlier stage cancer treatment, right? Like many of the existing diagnostic tools are for late stage patients because that's what the approved kind of, you know, FDA companion diagnostic structure exists for is people who have, you know, late stage or metastatic disease. But some of the technologies and new test types, like I think, you know, broadly speaking, I think liquid biopsies are one of the most important medical breakthroughs of this century. And I'm terribly excited about them. And I think one of the obvious implications is through a non-invasive blood draw, you can serially monitor cancer over its natural evolution, beginning at diagnosis as early as you know local or, or regional disease. And so being able to collect and analyze that data as patients move through that timeline, I think is going to be so important to be able to mine, understand, and use to you know, either prove to payers the true value of diagnostic testing, which to your point, you know, a test might cost two or three thousand dollars, but save you from having to take a hundred thousand dollar therapy that wouldn't have given you any clinical benefit, right? And so it makes a lot of sense, but we have to be able to understand the consequences. So I think, yeah, and the consequences a just pushing a little bit further in it. The consequences yeah. are as much, maybe not. They're as much economic, or they are substantially economic as they are health outcomes. Mm -hmm. We're operating in an environment where our cost structure is not tenable. And in an environment where the cost structure is not tenable, but you want to continue to push for innovation and breakthroughs, we've got to be able to do the math. It becomes all the more important. And when you think about what's happening in genetics and genetics today, as you have, and this is where you were going a little bit earlier with the paper that we contributed uh, with, along with Personalized Medicine uh, Coalition and uh, Illumina and the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association is saying like, there's just a big gap between policies 
and utilization. And ahead of policies are ultimately what the society says. So you've got this really long gap. So when policies change, what you don't see is an immediate change in utilization. Well, what we really want to do is make that process data-driven and we want to compress it and we want to do it mm -hmm. in a manner where we can understand the economics simultaneously. Where's the value? What's the, you know, the incremental benefit of this? You know, what's the difference between a cure and a treatment? What's the difference between a year and five years? Like those are math problems themselves that mm -hmm. our system does not do, really no one's system does a very good job of, but ours in particular does not do a good job of today. Right. And speaking of maybe just taking a little bit of a sidestep, but in terms of, of just operating in atypical environments, I'm wondering, moving forward, do you expect there to be kind of any change maybe on the payer side or maybe just the provider side of, you know, genetic testing because of COVID, right? Or And what I mean by that is like, will that change attitudes on a pair level? Because I know testing, I mean, it's not genetic testing for hereditary breast cancer, but testing has been a huge topic of conversation. I think just looking at Twitter and watching the news, I think the, the average public has learned more about what sensitivity and specificity are than any time before this. So I'm just wondering, that being the forefront of conversation and on people's minds and payers maybe either being forced to for economic reasons or just you know, what's relevant to them, how is that going to create aftershocks maybe in the next five years, let's say? Well, I think, I think it does a couple things. I think it has absolutely heightened everyone's awareness of diagnostics, I mean, of testing. There's just no doubt. I mean, whether it's trying to understand what's going to happen with the NBA and the NFL, like any aspect of life is like, how quickly can I get a test? How long does it take to get back? Do I get on a plane? Can I do any number of these yeah. types of things? So I think there's definitely an awareness of that. I think we've seen in very real ways, some of the limitations of our infrastructure, right? Just trying mm. to get an accurate count of number of tests, number of positives, deduping those things, understanding, doing it in a secure way. Like we just don't have very good, it's just taken a lot to get there and there's still pretty significant gaps. I think that, and so at the from the payer perspective, I think there's a heightened awareness. There's also, and I think maybe more importantly, a heightened awareness of the role and potential of testing for the employer as well. I think you can kind of, in the U.S. healthcare system, you kind of track back and think like, who's at risk on this? Who bears the economic consequence? And then what's their level of awareness of the challenge or the problem? And I think in as it relates to diagnostics, I think the employer's are, you know, the faster we can get the economy going, the faster we can get employees back in, the more effective the testing mechanism they can sort of, oh, this has a role to play. This isn't just drug mm -hmm. screening on employment. This is like more core to the lifeblood of what we do. Entire industries right. can't go on until, I mean, we're here in Nashville, like people will love an instantaneous test, right? You could have a musical event and in person if you could test everybody in a, under a minute. You could do it as you walk in, as opposed to we've got tons of people who can't do that. So I, I think that aspect will change. I think we're still a little bit away from where I think this goes over time, which is sort of looking at healthcare, particularly at an economic level, and looking at therapies, costly and otherwise, as all to some degree being personalized. And wanting to think about those therapies as something that we can measure ahead of time for whom something will work. And to what degree? Mm. So, you know, the in genetic testing data, that's largely sort of pharmacogenomics and somatic or oncology testing. 
But that logic applies to a lot of things that are much broader. So I think that part is not there yet, but I sense they sort of my sense and hope is that that's where there's a much bigger role to play for testing, for diagnostic, genetic testing, among others, as we think about that, like how do we innovate and how do we get more for our healthcare dollar? Mm-hmm. Well, in the pace of innovation too, with these different stakeholders, right? Like I know we've talked about the larger, well, the, I mean, public payer, obviously CMS, but then, you know, for better or for worse, you can talk about private payers and put them aside. But it's like, in terms of the agility of some of these entities, it's like employers are kind of below that. And some sizes of like some companies are the size of the beneficiary groups of some private payers, right? There's almost this interesting dynamic where because of as a repercussion of COVID and companies kind of making these decisions about, hey, how can we give these or pass these benefits along to our employees and bring them back online quicker or give them better quality healthcare, especially, and maybe this is a good thing to kind of take the conversation to, but this rapid adoption of telemedicine and internet of things and distributed devices kind of collecting information as you go, whether it's to like manage a chronic condition or track response to therapy. It's like, we are producing more data, healthcare data than than we ever have, right? And I think obviously there's a lot of intelligence to be mined from that, but I guess to maybe zero in on a specific way to take it, right? Like, how do you view the digitization of healthcare over the next decade or so? What are the opportunities? I know we we had a huge acquisition a few weeks back with Teladoc acquiring Livongo. I know some of our investors were asking about that, but that's another you know pretty interesting potential new titan of telemedicine that a lot of people are still trying to wrap their heads around. So I'm thinking again, like how do you think about that data generation? boom and what that could mean in terms of clinical intelligence or the intelligence you're trying to build with concert. So I think in general, it will accelerate digitization of health, both in terms of the accumulation of data, which in general opens up a number of avenues. I think it has a a couple of other interesting applications too. There's an implicit in telemedicine, an implicit sort of breaking down of regulatory barriers. There's a sort of a national market rather than 50 different state markets and sort of some of the the things that make it more complex harder to get real scale um, you can Mm -hmm. see being broken down in telemedicine in general i think of telemedicine more as a modality than a solution in and of itself so i think it is scalable it does break down walls it does lead to sort of the capture and usage of data you can much more easily build centers of excellence you can much more easily monitor activity, identify variants, intercede with training and guidance and redirection. I mean, those are all things that we have been doing in other sectors of the economy for a long time Mm -hmm. and have generally and apply artificial intelligence, apply a whole set of like really amazing innovations. I think the question is sort of what's the solution and to what end from a telemedicine perspective? And by that, I mean, I sort of contrast like or compare Teladoc with something like One Medical. So one being the latter really being, okay, we can, I call up, I can get access to a physician. The other being primary care. Like what do I or some other typical consumer or small consumer sub segment, what do we want to pay for? What will we pay for with our own money in terms Mm -hmm. of healthcare? And can the modality, whether it's the internet or whether it's telehealth or some other thing, can it lead to 
an innovation that so substantially lowers the cost of that service that I will consume it in a different way and I will pay for it on my own. And so mm. where are the areas that that could fit? I think primary care is a natural one. I would naturally pay, much more likely pay, a small subscription fee for access to a doctor when I need it, even though without an insurance intermediary. I'm willing to pay for that solution. You know, I may have a specific set of questions or needs around a rare disease or rare condition. Will I pay as a consumer for those types of things? And I think it's looking for those types of innovations from the modality, telehealth, or, and I mean, what we see in Teladocs and others is employers going, hmm, I have a problem on behalf of my employees, which is mm-hmm. fundamentally I am unable to pass along wage increases to my employees because most of, because my healthcare costs are growing faster than inflation. Well, right. so I'm trying to solve an economic problem. I want to lower the unit costs and use that modality. I think we're going to see that and we need to see that in things like primary care, but also in these innovations that we were talking about earlier around right. liquid biopsies. Like let's apply those technologies, not just to advance the science and bring cool stuff to market, but change the cost value proposition substantially. Do something at a tenth the cost and a hundred times better. Oh, that, so that's, that's yeah. the exciting potential to me, personalized medicine. Well, yeah. And I mean, part of that too, like I think one interesting company that we've been sort of focused on recently is a new healthcare SaaS company called Accolade that went public recently. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but maybe to just refresh a little bit on it, I think, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of a patient or a population benefits manager, like to your point, right? Like costs are going up. The number of services is getting more confusing. And especially like when you have these narrow you know, individually kind of narrow topics, like, you know, non-invasive prenatal is a good example where the tech is getting so good that you can do it for 99 bucks, you know, through a direct channel. It's like when we start getting that happening over a broad scale across many different things, it's going to become vexing, right? To have all these different, you know, yes, cheap and awesome bang for your buck services, but like, how do you rank order those and prioritize them based on your needs as a person? If I'm, you know, 24 and in relatively good health, or I need a different set of benefits than someone who's, you know, a different background or healthcare state than I'm in, right? So it's all about personalization. But yeah, I mean, the breadth is incredible. But you want that, right? I mean, you want, yeah, you yeah, want yeah. that choice. Yeah. And you may decide, I may decide, and we're, you know, maybe we're in a different, we live in different places and we're in different stages of life and those types of things. We're going to make a different set of decisions about how we spend our money in that area. And there are going to be new services and intermediaries that help us make those decisions. And that's good. It's especially good if it's your money and my money that are going to solve those problems because we're going to push innovation. We're going to see the types of things that sort of price and outcome trade-offs or improvements simultaneously that we see in LASIK or we've seen in LASIK over the last 10 or 15 years, right? I mean, that's what we want. Well, do you think it could get to a point where instead of like for me, right, let's say based on what I want, instead of having to go and pay like a flat fee for insurance or maybe pay a certain amount for my company, obviously benefits are different depending on where you're employed. But would it ever get to a point where based on exactly what I want, I can kind of have someone navigate that entire broad and ever broadening ecosystem of of really awesome different services. And I just pay a fee to kind of have that tailored to me. So I get more of what I want. If I want hereditary breast cancer or ovarian cancer or that kind of HBOC testing, or if I'm someone who wants prenatal screening or other services like that, it can be more tailored to me rather than just, you know, kind of broad insurance. 
Absolutely, because what you just described in terms of broad insurance isn't really insurance. It's really prepaid healthcare. What you want is insurance against a high consequence, low frequency event. And then you want to make decisions, maybe with an expert guiding you, on how you spend the rest of your money around maintenance. Got it. I think that's a fundamentally different way to think about the decisions. But that's exactly what we want. We want services that are coming to bear, tech-enabled, Moore's Law-driven innovations that drive down prices in these things where people see value. It doesn't mean we're not going to need experts and societies and infrastructure to collect and measure data and do utility studies. It just means it shouldn't be the only thing, the only horse that we're betting on in that particular mm -hmm. area because you are gonna want, and we do this in every other area of the economy. And we wanna see that. And I think when you start to look forward, we look forward from a technology perspective and you look forward to things like liquid biopsy. And we think about the amount of data that's gonna be consumed and the potential implications for that. I mean, we're struggling, and that the paper that you referenced and others things in the market suggest that we're struggling just to deal with the amount of data and evidence that we have now. We're talking orders of magnitude. Broad swaths of the population are having blood-based liquid biopsy tests on a quarterly or annual basis. I mean, we're talking about staggering amounts of information and data. How mm. is the infrastructure, the healthcare system going to deal with that over the next five years? It's going to break. We're going to need new things that replace it and new mechanisms mm -hmm. and models for understanding and then pushing back into the healthcare system, the learnings. And I think that's what's just super exciting about this area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the last things I, I just want to end on here is, you know, with all of that said, maybe talking a little bit about the Genetic Health Information Network Summit and how stakeholders can come together and kind of have a place to talk about these issues and understand that, you know, to some extent, it's just a matter of time before we get to that stage with all of the momentum and the evidence that has been built and is building. I think I'd maybe want to just touch on that a little bit. Yeah, I think it kind of comes back a little bit full circle to where we started. But so what are some of the problems that we're trying to solve? And one of them that we realized around personalized medicine, around genetic health, was that it's a multi-stakeholder problem. Mm -hmm. You have, we're all, we should all be trying to serve the patient, but there are very different stakeholders or very different roles and providers and health insurers laboratories, pharmaceutical companies, government, whole set of stakeholders. And what we kind of realized was there's not a good place for those stakeholders to come together and think and talk and solution around what's needed to go and be able ultimately to build a learning ecosystem so that we can better serve the patient, the member, whichever kind of health consumer, depending on your perspective. And so what we designed and won't be able to do in person, but are kind of doing in a little bit of a virtual fashion this fall is this Genetic Health Information Network Summit, which is, hey, let's get leaders who are in organizations of influence and in positions in those organizations to come together in a non-attribution environment. We did it in Nashville. It's a fun place to get together, especially when we can <laughs> actually be in the same place. And mm -hmm. we put people in a room and we had a bunch of different activities and discussions and we said, hey, the basic deal is here, we're going to talk honestly about some of the challenges. It's not going to be on an attribution basis. And we're going to follow up and we're going to make public the themes and the discussions and the potential solutions. And we're going to, we are going to provide some sort of continuity there. But we actually want to have a tense discussion around things like payment, 
with leading organizations who set standards, with leaders at health insurance companies, with laboratory executives who are trying to get paid, all of those people going, sometimes it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And what you actually end up in that convening moment when done right is people going, oh, I own a part of this. I own a part of this. I'm pushing this here mm -hmm. and I can maybe do it a little bit differently. And you gain that sort of empathetic perspective of the complexity mm -hmm. of the problem. And that is really, really important because change does not come from just big organizations and government sort of decrees. It actually comes from people, relationships, understanding the problem, defining the problem, and then beginning to work together. And a lot of the stuff that we've done, we've just kind of learned from these lessons. We at Concert, the company, have done, have really been going, okay, these are the types of problems, whether it's test identification or whether it's understanding downstream impact of on particular therapies or whether it's integration with EHRs and lab information. These are practical problems that need solutions if we want to get to that place in the future. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, I definitely, again, just want to point people to the, I'm going to source the paper below, but the white paper you guys put out on, it's just such a great way to understand all of the barriers to adoption of some of the most common tests that people may be familiar with. Again, we talked about prenatal testing, but also things like whole exome sequencing, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, for rare disease and comprehensive genomic profiling for people with cancer. So I think maybe the last thing just to end on is for people that do want to learn more about concert or potentially get in touch or just stay on the news flow for what you're putting out, is uh, any way that they can follow you other than just going onto the website, any sort of subscriber or newsletter anything like that would be great. Because I know a lot of people after this are probably going to want to just hear the state of affairs moving forward. Yeah, we'll provide links to those, the you know Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, newsletters, all that good stuff. Happy to do that. Okay, cool. And we'll have pointers on there as well. So anyway, uh, Rob, thanks a lot for joining us on FYI. Appreciate it. Great conversation. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Simon. Really appreciate it. Have a yeah, great day. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you too. Bye-bye. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.